0: Welcome to the Happy Saver podcast. I'm Ruth, a personal finance blogger right here in New Zealand. And in this podcast, I chat to a diverse bunch of people. I learn their story and I condense it down so that you can hear helpful, relatable stories from Kiwis who are sharing their experiences, their tips and point of view on personal finance right here in New Zealand. In today's episode, I had a chat with Jay. Now Jay reached out to me with a story to share about him and his wife Shelley and their property investment journey. I always find it interesting to speak with people who invest in things completely different to me. Just because I've found other ways to grow my wealth that don't include residential real estate beyond the whare that I call home, it doesn't mean it's not a viable alternative for others. And hey, what can I say, a large slice of Kiwis love investing in property and Jay is absolutely one of those people. He sees it as their way to riches and he enjoys the ins and outs of the property market. He has been incredibly successful so far in building wealth, using debt, yet he is still constantly looking for new information and tweaking his approach as a result. He's building on a foundation built by his whanau and he's continuing to grow his investments with the main goal being for him and Shelley to hand them on to the next generation, their three tamariki. So grab yourself a coffee or put the dog on the lead and head out for a walk and enjoy this episode brought to you by the team at Pocksmith. Having a side hustle or running a business can be profitable, rewarding, and take it from me, actually pretty fun. But if I don't keep up with the admin side of the happy saver, it can quickly get a bit out of control. So I use Pocketsmith to easily keep track of multiple income streams. Pocketsmith links to my side hustle bank account and keeps track of my fluctuating income and expenses. So, at a glance, I can see if I'm running at a profit or a loss for the month and year the invoices that have been paid and I can calculate the tax I need to set aside. It helps me keep good records to monitor my business and it just takes me a few minutes a week to manage. If you want to supercharge your finances with Pocketsmith, they've got a deal for you. Happy Saver listeners get a whopping 50% off your first two months of Pocketsmith's premium plan. To get your deal, go to Pocketsmith.com forward slash the Happy Saver. That's Pocketsmith.com forward slash the Happy Saver. I first heard from Auckland-based Jay in 2021 when he filled out my net worth millionaire questionnaire. He had equity of $3.7 million and mortgage debt of $2.7 million. Jay is in his late 30s and his wife Shelley is in her early 40s. They're a blended Farno, and between them they have three tamariki, one at home and two who have left the nest. Between them they currently make about $100,000 a year after tax. This prompted the first of many questions from me how does someone so young create such a substantial net worth? So we picked up the phone in early April of 2022 for a chat and off the bat I can confirm that Jay is a heck of a nice guy and he spoke for both himself and Shelley and started by telling me a bit about himself. He was born in Pukekohe in the early 80s and he has two older siblings from his dad's previous marriage but Dad would left home by the time he was born, so he was kind of an only child to two incredibly hard-working parents. They bought their first house soon after he was born, and that's where he grew up. He said his parents were working class, middle New Zealand. His dad started out as a drain layer, but later in his life he joined the same profession as Jay's mum, which was as a nurse. His mum is now in her 70s and has only just retired, but sadly his dad passed away a few years ago. Jay's dad in particular has had a really significant influence on how Jay thinks about money to this day. He recalls his dad, who was Pākehā, being a real grafter, a real hard worker. Jay recalls many nights where if he woke up and looked out the window, he could see work lights on in the yard and his dad hard at work on a project for himself or for someone else. He wasn't frugal as such. His quote was, you have still got to enjoy life, son. You still have to be happy and he seemed to find the line between having fun in life and not going overboard. There was always a balance to be found. He managed the family finances well and was fastidious about reconciling expenses by hand, long after internet banking became a thing. His family used to give him a bit of a hard time about this and joke around with him, but he stuck to his system because it worked. Jay said that upon reflecting on what he was taught about money at home, he didn't think his parents, his dad in particular, pushed things too much around money, They didn't go on about it all the time and turn Jay off but they said enough to keep him interested and he just acquired good financial knowledge along the way. His mum and dad were extremely community-minded and both incredibly hard workers, often working opposite shifts to each other as they went about their nursing work and he said of his mum who was Māori that she would pull 16-hour working days if required until the day she retired and she remains a huge campaigner for personal and social justice Particularly in the area of Maori mental health, she's just deeply passionate about people getting a fair go. He said. Shelley, on the other hand, was born in the late seventies and came from a large farno of seven kids and they didn't have a lot growing up. They lived in a state house and they had food on the table, but they were really living week to week, so it took time for her to adjust to the position of abundance that they really do find themselves in today. Jay is more interested in running their finances and she trusts in what he is doing, but he said they are very collaborative and they talk openly about money, which is wonderful to hear. Schooling was pretty normal for Jay, but he decided to stop after the sixth form, or year 12, and his older brother helped him into his first job in about 1999 at a poultry farm earning $9 an hour. He stayed there for four years before he was approached by a woman who could see what a huge work ethic Jay had, She helped him into a role at a security firm, which is a cash transport management business, offering him a $2.50 an hour pay rise. In hindsight, the extra cash didn't change much for him, as his work commute increased from 10 kilometres a day to 50 k's a day. But he wasn't thinking about petrol costs and wear and tear on his car. He was focused on a different job with more money. Slowly, this job changed and morphed into a career for Jay. The woman who headhunted him was right to see his potential and he rose up the ranks of this industry, and he took on more and more responsibility, literally handling millions of dollars a day, which sounded pretty exciting to me. He was managing people, managing customers, and seeing quite a bit of Aotearoa in the process. He met Shelley in 2006. She was already mum to two young children, and together they had a brief stint working in Australia, where she has family, but they found the pace a bit too fast, he said. So they settled back into New Zealand, he went back to his old job earning about $17 an hour and she continued her career in customer service and they've called New Zealand home ever since. He says of step-parenting two young children that he took on the responsibility with his whole heart and when their daughter was born in 2008, their whānau was complete. At this time, also in 08, they bought a home together paying $490,000 for a fare in Auckland helped in a big way with a $200,000 gift from his parents. There was little said about this gift, just an acknowledgement that with fatherhood pending for Jay, it was time to grow up and be responsible for his family. It gave his dad immense satisfaction, it seems, to have helped the next generation out. And once they were in, they then set about aggressively paying off their home. And with debt pay down and a rising housing market, the equity soon began to grow. Jay switched jobs, moving to a competitor company, and his salary climbed over the years to about $67,000 by the time he left in 2015, which he thought was pretty decent at the time. And with each job change came more responsibilities, and with that came higher income. Between 2015 and 2019, he actually moved into the same workplace as Shelley, working as an operations manager while she worked as a customer services manager covering Australia and New Zealand. While she was earning about $100,000, his income rose again, up to $70,000, and then up to ninety. dollars And it was during this time that they reached their peak earnings of about $190,000 combined. But all things come at a cost, and with more money comes more responsibilities at work, and pressure on them both. And that's what prompted his next change. It was just getting too full on, and he started to put more emphasis on living life than enduring increasing pressure at work. Even if the money was really good, he moved to a different company as a warehouse manager, earning $65,000, and she to a different company, but still as a customer services manager. And today she works full time and earns about 80K a year before tax. For Jay, one more job move brings him to where he is at today. For the last 18 months, he has been working three 10 hour days a week back in the cash delivery business, back on an hourly rate and taking home in his hand $576 a week. So by my reckoning, he's probably on about $24 an hour. They both rose to their career peaks and have now both tapered things back to less stressful, more manageable schedules where they have a work-life balance. In regards to getting into investment property, things started to change for them when Jay's dad passed away really suddenly in 2016. After making extra payments on their mortgage for a number of years, Jay and Shelley had almost paid their home off by this stage, plus it had increased in value to about 950000 Because his dad had been starting to show signs of dementia, they had all decided to sell their home and pool their money with his parents to buy a home that would fit all of them in it so that they could share in caring for his dad and they were actively visiting open homes to make it a reality. But with his dad so suddenly taken from their fano, their plans had to change too. It triggered him to see that they almost had a freehold house. His own father's goal had always been to see his own three tamariki in their own houses and it helped Jay into his. So when he died, it triggered Jay to look deeper at the legacy that he could or should leave to his and Shelley's children. He sees the housing market getting tougher and tougher and he wants to see each child in their own home. His plan is to ensure that it happens because he said, They can't do it alone. The prices are too high in Auckland and he wants to help. A deep dive into financial education began for Jay in 2016 and it's showing no signs of letting up. He began to devour knowledge and from the conversations we had, I could see clearly that he really does have a natural gift for the nitty-gritty detail and the numbers. In 2017, he signed up for a $300 eight-week property investment course Held by accounting firm Gilligan Rowe, which sounds like a bit of a one stop shop for those wanting to buy a rental property. He walked out of it and he thought, shit, this is a light bulb moment in my life. He felt that he had been given information that was going to really help shape his and Shelley's future. It felt momentous. The switch flipped. He went from being content with living a New Zealand lifestyle and owning his own home to being increasingly motivated to go out and look for real estate assets that could generate income far beyond their paychecks so that he could create wealth for them and the next generation. For him the path to doing this was by owning multiple rental properties and he would do this by borrowing money from their bank. He told me that he created the end goal which is wanting to earn $200,000 a year from property investments. This would make their need to work for a living in PAYE employment entirely optional. He then worked backwards from that figure and calculated that he would need 12 properties to achieve this kind of income, and they've been working towards this goal ever since. What this time of learning also prompted them to do as a couple was to finally combine their bank accounts, giving them transparency over where all their money was coming from and going to, so that they could then go in search of housing. In the past, he said that Shelley lent more on the spending side, him more on the saver, but in more recent times, now that they are both so transparent with their money, she has really flipped things around. They looked at where money was just being wasted and fritted, and they cut these expenses. He helped her set up bank accounts with budgets that were meaningful to her, and they created a bit of a blueprint to work to. All of their bank accounts can be seen by each other now, which proved a useful addition to their household budgeting. I asked him if he had any thoughts to share on combining accounts with a spouse because I know that it's particularly difficult for people to contemplate doing so, particularly if it's their second marriage, particularly if they've banked their own way for so long and particularly if they have been financially burnt by a previous spouse, as Shelley had. He said that he would have done it years ago if he had his way because when money is divided, the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing, so you won't get ahead. He gets the emotional aspect and the independent aspect, people often like to have some money that they can call their own, but you can have all joint accounts and sinking funds, then just one personal private account if that is what you want. It's been so beneficial for them both to have complete transparency over their money instead of one assuming the other has their stuff together. Assumptions are the mother of all stuff-ups after all. He gave me a handy tip too. As they were bringing things together, they printed off and laid all their bank transactions literally on the kitchen table, and then kept or cut expenses transaction by transaction. There were lots of small subscriptions, particularly for online services and apps, being charged to their credit card, and they were very, very hard to cancel by going back to the company charging them. So he just closed the credit card that they linked to and drew their fees from. Then they got a new credit card and are now super mindful about what they use it for. After an extensive search, they bought their first rental property in 2017. It was two houses on one 1,000-metre section. They borrowed 100% of the total cost of $820,000 on a 30-year term using their own home, which by now was freehold, as collateral. It was pretty easy to do, he said. When they bought it, the bright line test, which is the way of taxing financial gains on investment properties sold within a certain period of buying it, was just two years. By now, Jay was starting to really embrace the power of leverage. He had developed a view, and I have to be honest here that I don't understand the math behind it, but the rent had to exceed the purchase price. They paid $820,000, so the rent needed to be higher than $820 per week, which it barely was. So he put the rent up to $900 a week once he took possession. One house was rented for 470 dollars and the other for 430 dollars Through all of his research, he learned that the property needed to pay for itself, meaning that on an interest-only mortgage, all expenses, maintenance, rates, insurance bills, etc., had to be covered by the rent. But Jay also wanted to pay down the principal too, not just pay interest, and cross his fingers that the value of the house went up. So in their first year of owning it, they managed to pay $30,000 on the principal of the mortgage. His goal is to always keep knocking away at the debt, but not have to contribute his own money from his and Shelley's wages. I always ask about the tenants that people have. He didn't displace any tenants when he bought this first property, he said, but when they did move on, this rental property became a family affair that seems to work really well. Shelley's mum and partner moved into one house and Shelley's older children moved into the other one with their partners. They all look out for each other, and since that rent increase back when they bought it, they have never put the rent up again. Now, this is not surprising. I often see rents get effectively frozen because, well, how do you tell your mum and kids that you're increasing their rent? He said that, yes, the property is under-rented based on other places around them, which he said have shown massive rental inflation recently. He said that they are probably losing about $170 a week or almost $9,000 a year compared to similar properties. But on the bright side, he could not ask for better tenants. They are super handy, super helpful, and look after the property and each other so well that there are never any issues to manage. But our conversation then went off on a tangent and did come around to the recent increases in the superannuation rates for those over 65. He knows there is more money coming into his mother-in-law's household now, so if there was a time to increase rents, it might be now. Now I don't want to throw Jay under the bus here because I really enjoyed our honest conversation but I had questions about how and why landlords increase rents and he did concur that rents are getting out of whack for many and I couldn't help but wonder and I'm not saying Jay did this but just how many property owners out there heard about these superannuation increases and thought yep I'll take a piece of that thanks very much. It feels unscientific to base a rent increase on this in my view. And it's a dog chasing its tail. Super goes up to cover increased rents. Then rents go up because the owner knows the tenant has more money. And on it goes. Now Jay follows politics quite closely. He is in touch with his community. And he is fully aware that if in this current economic climate he is putting chocolate and the nice-to-haves back on the supermarket shelf, what are people who are on any kind of benefit for going? He knows times are tough for tenants but he said that new government rules around rental property, which increases costs for landlords, have started to back landlords into a corner, pushing them to increase rents to cover their growing costs, and they are looking for ways to continue to have their houses fully pay their own way, as every property seminar seems to believe they should. He's pretty keen for a change in government, actually, to remove upcoming additional costs, but I really don't think that's going to be the answer to his problems. Every government makes and amends laws, Some impact you directly, some don't. Because where does it end? Just because a property investor is willing to pay more and more to buy a house, the calculation of rent being more than the price you paid has to find a tipping point, surely. I can see how it might have worked in the past, but not at the moment, not with Auckland house prices being the way they are. You would have to be investing in the hope of capital gains or the property going up in value because rental yield can only stretch so far to cover costs, surely. So we went down an interesting track with all this, but let's get back to his story. By 2018, Jay said he was feeling super confident and started to really believe in what he was doing. The course he did had taught him the value of the land these houses sat on and how the Auckland Unitary Plan, which guides land development, meant that a developer could come along and put, say, 10 houses on this 1,000 square metre spot where two currently sit. He had, he knew, bought well. So in 2018, they bought another property, also with two dwellings on it, for $910,000, rented at $1,050 a week, split over those two dwellings. And then they went on to buy their third rental property in 2021 for $1,101,000. The rent was $1,140 split over two dwellings, and he will be putting that rent up to $1,180 sometime this year. In total, they now have four properties with a total of eight dwellings, one of which is their own home, another on that same site was actually purchased by his mum, so she lives independently and rent-free in her own home, but he includes this in his count, so really there are six rentable houses on three sites. Plus, he is in a long process of winding up a small business he created, and he's hoping for a cash settlement at some point in the future, that he is considering putting into a new build on one of these properties. When we spoke, the total mortgage debt across these four plots of land, which have eight homes in total, was $2,753,000. Leverage is key for Jay and Shelley, and they have no qualms about taking on significant debt. It has, he said, allowed them to finance these properties, with six houses producing income to service this huge debt. Plus, they have their own home to live in, all the while having a combined take-home salary of around $130,000 before taxes. Furthermore, up until this point, tenant rents have covered all tax, principal and interest mortgage payments and house-related expenses without them having to dip into their own pocket at all. And the total value of all this real estate, I hear you ask? Their total portfolio is valued at about $6,450,000 now, with debt on it of $2.75 million. Given they only bought their first home in 2008 and then started buying rental property in 2017, I can appreciate that this is pretty incredible to have built up equity of $3.7 million since buying their first house in 08, especially when $2,757,000 of this amount has only come about in the last four and a half years. He said to me, I now have a portfolio of $6.45 million with a debt of $2.75 million. If I stop and think about this for a minute, over the last four and a half years, if I was to simply invest each month in shares using a portion of each paycheck and holding no rentals, only the home we live in, I may have created wealth of perhaps $200,000 over that four and a half years. At a 10% return, that $200,000 may have grown to $345,000. The two different forms of investing rental property and share market investing are in stark contrast with each other. He is correct when he says that if he had have just invested in shares from his PAYE income, there would be no way that he could have amassed 3.7 million dollars in equity in such a short period of time. He acknowledges that carrying that amount of debt comes with risk, but all investments carry risk he pointed out, and if he was nervous about it at any point, he said he could sell one of the properties and clear a large amount of that debt. And I should point out that this is the exact same thinking that his bank also has. Jay plays out a lot of scenarios, which I think he has to do because the situation can change at any time. If he was forced to sell, he could then pay down the much smaller amount of debt, remaining on the other properties and become debt-free in a shorter period of time. Another scenario he also factors into his plans is to inherit his mum's house one day, plus a holiday home that his family owns elsewhere. One day, these can both be rented, plus the holiday home sits on the site that Jay and Shelley might even move to, meaning their current home could also be rented. Throughout our chat, we discussed many, many scenarios and options. I find it unusual to hear Jay speak about his mother's property becoming his one day. It almost sounds presumptuous that he would think this to be the case. After all, it's hers to do with what she will. But Jay really wanted to get across that his family is trying to create intergenerational wealth here. His parents helped him into a home with a $200,000 cash gift and their property will come to him one day. In turn, he said he is desperate to ensure that he passes the torch or this wealth and these properties to his three tamariki to ensure that they get the best possible life too. I asked him how he rationalized the fact that he knows it's harder for younger people to buy property these days. Yet his very own homegrown investment strategy is almost entirely focused on property and is to, in time, own 12 houses of his own and grow his wealth through capital gains or an increase in house prices on these properties, while charging increasing rent over time. He is planning to make money from a rising housing market so that he can pull money from it and help his kids into a high-priced housing market. All of the houses they have purchased have had significant increases in value. So while he is making a fortune out of property, many out there, including his kids, are finding housing further and further out of reach. It's a cycle that he acknowledges that he is in a way contributing to. His net worth has grown because of rising house prices at the detriment of his own kids, which in turn increases his need to help them because they can't afford a house hmm so how does he see this transfer of wealth taking place the two older children are only in their early and mid-20s both working and still finding their way in life and he thinks that once they've shown financial stability and a level of education around money and housing etc that he would like them to take ownership of a property with two houses on it they could then live in one and rent the other I asked if they were aware of this plan Well they don't discuss it too much but they know that in the broader sense that Jay and Shelley are doing all of this for their kids but he doesn't want them to think that they'll just be getting something for free. There will need to be some substantial effort on their part too. As a stepdad raising kids he said that he didn't have the confidence early in their life to step in and really have a say. Plus they were so busy working themselves that they didn't he thinks put enough emphasis on this type of education. He was always cognizant of his place and aware that he was their stepfather, and although he was always there to support them, he let their mum be mum, but he didn't want to cross any parenting boundaries. This lack of money chat early in the life of his older kids was also due in a large part to the fact that back then Jay didn't have the knowledge himself to educate, but now things are different. He is keen to share what he knows about property. And they are receptive to him trying to teach them and build up their knowledge, which is fantastic. It's like Fitness Jay, who also happens to be a complete sports nut, says, You don't lose weight from one run. It's about consistent actions over a long period of time. So now with the younger child who was just 13, he's really stepping into that space of teaching financial literacy and education that he feels the older two missed out on. She has a paper run and is investing a portion of her pay into ETFs already which is a tremendous start. And the message he wants to get across to his kids is that if you invest well, owning property can change your life. It's a business where you can literally finance your way into an investment that will be paid for by tenants and using the bank's money without you tipping money into it. Yes, interest rates may change, but if you do the numbers right, such as him always buying two houses on one plot, you can achieve success with a no money down scenario. Now, I'm not going to (laughs) lie, I struggle with the concept of housing as a business, and having dwelled on why this is, I've concluded that I don't like seeing tenants being used as such a blunt wealth-building instrument for the betterment of a minority. When housing is viewed as just a business, the pendulum can swing too far in one direction, and I think that's what we are seeing now, with rising house prices, rising rents, and our current government introducing rules to change things. Owning property has been such a huge cash cow for so many for so long but the pendulum is on the move which Jay is pretty clear he is not overly happy about. The other issue I have is that Jay and Shelley never get to collect their rent. Well they do but they give it all to everyone else. They hold all this equity across all this property yet they don't see a cent in their bank account that they can get to keep at least at this stage. Jay kindly helped me out with this he is content that this will be their reality for the foreseeable future. While he is fit and healthy, he said they are in no rush to retire, so they do not need the income from the rent. Over the next 10 years or so, he said that he is likely to pick up tax-free capital gains to the tune of 6% on his portfolio of $6.45 and my thinking once again is that unrealized capital gains won't pay for the groceries, but in theory I can see that they are there. In regards to investing solely in property, he wanted to reiterate that he does all this not to be wealthy but to have control of his time when he deems it's the right time to pull back from paid employment. He reiterated that he also invests this way more than anything for the future, for a time when he can have homes for his children to live in and own, with each of them also having another dwelling on the same site giving them income support, i.e. the tenants also paying rent. It's hard to predict the future, and it's fair to say that people who invest in property felt a little, how shall we say, set upon when the current government introduced changes to the interest deductibility on investment properties recently. I asked Jay how the government changes will impact him. Rules are always being tweaked and changed in response to national and international pressures. It's just a fact of life. The Reserve Bank has been tweaking loan-to-value ratios, meaning that the investment property buyer has to have quite a bit of equity in their other investment properties. I think it's 40% to get new lending. And rules are different for if you are just buying an existing house or if you are adding to the overall housing supply by building new properties, which they view more favourably. More recently, mortgage interest rates have been on the rise and they are predicted to go higher. In fact, between speaking with Jay and writing this up, they rose yet again. Whereas you used to be able to pay interest only on your mortgage, now I've heard that you can't do this for more than five years without the lender having to reassess your capacity to pay because the banks are gearing up for still higher interest rates and they want to ensure that they're going to get their money back. Up until this point Jay's strategy of leveraging has been a sure winner. He's taken more risks than I could stomach but he's grown his wealth as a reward. He said he factored in higher interest rates all along and with his strategy of paying both principal and interest, he was never solely reliant on capital gains alone. In fact, he said that he wouldn't be bothered if the homes didn't go up in price. Because nor does he plan to sell. So the changes to the Brightline test were not really an issue to him either and there won't be any additional tax to pay there. Plus, over time, he is keen not to buy more land but to put more homes on the land he already has thereby increasing the housing supply, which is a good thing. Even with the council rates going up by over $1,250 a year on one property alone, currently the rent he receives still covers all of the outgoings. But these recent changes to interest deductibility, where you can no longer deduct interest paid on a mortgage as an expense, has upset the apple cart, and they are set to impose new costs on his business model that can no longer be covered by the rent. His ideology around property, he said, was to buy investments that didn't require topping up of the mortgage. However, with government changes, he will now find himself having to do just that. That settlement I mentioned that he was hoping to receive from closing a business, he will now be keeping this money aside to pay future taxes owed. And he shared with me an important phrase that he said he now takes on board. Capital gains are off away in the future. It may never actually happen, whereas cash flow is money you can use to pay your groceries today. To enjoy the future, you first of all must survive today. We don't know who said this, but it's a good point. He said that while he keeps his finger on the pulse of politics and the mood of Kiwis, as more regulation has come on stream, he will look to diversify assets and investments because the government of the day will probably take some of his wealth at some stage and he needs to do what he can to protect it. He is constantly considering and investigating what levers he can pull, and as he matures, he gets more of an understanding of what these tax changes mean for him. What might that plan be, I had to ask? Any announcements made that have an impact on rental property have many investors in a bit of a flap. He is adapting to an evolving situation, and when he said these new rules have backed landlords into a corner, I could see him searching for the best exit by playing with the idea of different scenarios which most likely mean that he is going to have to dip into his own pocket to pay up. He said that the last thing he wants to do is sell any of his properties because he has his plan and he wants to play it through. But he has a tax bill coming to him in ever-increasing amounts over the next five years. By 2024, by his calculations, the rent will no longer pay all the bills and they will need to use their income to top up by $17,000 this rises to $35,000 in 2025 and $44,000 by 2026, when interest deductibility is completely phased out. Because he bought the houses over a number of years, at the same time as the government changed the Brightline test, if he did choose to sell, he has a really hard decision to make about which one to sell. And then if he chooses not to sell any, well, all of their capital will be tied up for a really long period of time. Now, I hope you're keeping up with me here. Like I say, property investors have so many moving parts. And then, of course, there is the problem of a house being such an illiquid asset. Just because you want to sell might not mean that someone is looking to buy a house, or you might be fundamentally opposed to selling if you can see the market is down and your house is worth less now than it, in theory, used to be. And or they might not be willing to pay what you want in this current market. Who knows? The process could take many months to complete. Once again, though, he is looking at all sorts of options. He could work more himself. He could build another house to bring in extra rent. He could rent to a social housing provider because there are tax advantages to doing so. He's actually researching this very option right now. He is also hoping for a change of government at the next election. But I honestly think that this won't fix his problems anyway. And I'll go back to my first thought when Jay and I began to chat. Housing as an investment is extremely complex, which leads me to my final concern with the housing market. Those who go all in on property because of the wealth it can bring, and Jay and Shelley are great examples of the wealth it can create, they back themselves into their own corner because of their lack of diversification. I don't think you can blame any government for that, and Jay agrees that you have to look at the economic conditions, no matter the government of the day, and adjust your own course. Too much of one thing, any one thing, limits your ability to adapt. Because their primary investment vehicle has been only housing, of course they feel the pressure more than someone like myself who doesn't really care what interest rates are or what bright line tests do to a property investor. It's just not even on my radar. So Jay is scanning for his next move and I've no doubt that he will find it. He's listening to podcasts. He's listening to economic experts. He's reading all the property investment websites and he's soaking in all the information. He's watching the government and they are in turn watching him. What will he do? Load these new costs onto his tenants or suck them up himself, thereby completely shifting the model he's lived by. I'm fascinated to find out where he goes from here. His plan is to hold on because he said if he can afford to pay the extra costs imposed on him, then over the long term, he said, Property is as safe as houses. They will, he thinks, continue to go up in value over time, and one day he will own them all debt free. He wants to own 12 properties outright, and his goal is to put more homes on the land he already has. But right now, it's about dealing with the impacts of interest rates, inflation, and new tax laws. I really hope this podcast episode doesn't come across as giving Jay a hard time. Honestly, he's a top bloke, and I really learned a lot from speaking with him. And I appreciate how candid he was in explaining his situation. He said he lives a normal life, a simple life if you take the house investments out of the mix for a moment. He's not materialistic and is really content. He loves his whanau, he loves his sport, and he loves to travel overseas when he can. But to me, it all just seems so hard. I've now met plenty of people who have divested themselves of housing. And invested elsewhere, generally in the share market, generally in index or ETF investments, and they just seem chilled and content, not running themselves ragged trying to hit an end goal anymore. And I wonder what motivates Jay to stick to his complex path. He said that he's done the numbers, which makes him stick to his plan, and he wants to retire when he is in his 60s. So on he goes. Retirement to him is not too different to how he lives his life now. He just pictures being healthy, enjoying life spending time helping in his community, taking a few holidays with his nearest and dearest, and not being financially dependent on an employer. But more recently, he has learned a little lesson in diversification, and he is looking for other ways to grow wealth outside of housing. They have now set $20,000 aside as a rainy day fund, and both he and Shelley are in KiwiSaver. His balance is only $36,000 and hers just $15,000. They didn't get into it until about six years ago, And he started and stopped as he changed between jobs and dropped down in income. Because he needed the extra money in his pay packet at that time, he kept stopping his KiwiSaver contributions, which he sees now as flawed thinking, given what he knows about compounding returns and time in the market. More recently, he has moved his KiwiSaver out of the default fund it languished in into an aggressive fund with Milford. While looking for investing alternatives, he has also dabbled in crypto, putting in $2,000 and promptly losing his password, so he can kiss that money goodbye forever because he will never gain access to it again. And take that as a word of warning if you are a prospective crypto investor. After listening to this very podcast and hearing about the experiences shared by others and by reading up on share investing, he has started investing in a Vanguard VTI fund using Hatch, Which is a total stock market fund, and then encouraging Shelley to invest specifically into Berkshire Hathaway Class A shares. Now, this is Warren Buffett's company. They have made the decision now that he invests his entire pay into the share market, so that's not mucking around. And it's good to see some diversification coming in, but I do worry at the aggressiveness of it. But having chatted to him a while, I can see that this is just the kind of person he is. Learn new information implement new information. I just hope that he keeps reading he doesn't try to reinvent the wheel and he just settles into becoming a dollar cost averaging long-term investor just like his tenants have settled into a long-term plan of paying rent to him and Shelley. I hope he does the same with his VTI investments and his KiwiSaver and he put my mind at rest when he said that this is very much his intention. Right now on to some quick questions. I asked him what's the most extravagant thing that they've purchased for themselves in the last 90 days. Well, they actually just bought a moped for Shelley to ride to work, but they scored that for free when they won some money in a radio competition of all things. In fact, he went on to tell me about heaps of stuff he's won over the years, including trips to see some pretty major sporting events. So aside from that free moped, then his answer was nothing. And he's perfectly happy. He feels he has everything he needs. So if he had $10,000 just drop into his lap right now, he and Shelley would probably just put it straight into the share investments they've recently started. I asked Jay for his three main financial habits, the things that he just automatically does, and he managed to give me just two, and they are that they stick to a budget at the grocery store. He looks at the pack and save specials online before going in store, and he tells himself as he walks into the shop, he just needs to make $240 work For the family this week, and that's a great way of looking at it. He always goes to the same petrol station, and his theory is that he gets continuity in the quality of fuel used instead of mixing up different suppliers all the time. It's better for the overall running of his car, he said, and he uses the mobile app to get the rewards. And while we're on cars, there's no Teslas here. He drives a 2011 Toyota and she a 2013 Suzuki. For both of them, it's about having fun with their kids, not having stuff or fancy cars. He managed to also change power companies two weeks ago, changing to Frank Energy and saving $500 a year, which sounds like a switch well worth making. And does he have someone that he can openly talk about money with? Apart from the guy that he went to those seminars with all that time ago, his one regret is that he doesn't have enough people in his circle trying to paddle the walker in the same direction. So to help with this, he just joined the Property Investor Association at a cost of $400, so that he can tap into more community and more knowledge. Some friends also know he's really passionate about financial stuff, and they send him random questions, and he said that really sparks him up when he is able to help others. And he very kindly offered that anyone listening to this episode who wants to connect with him can do so. Just reach out to me at ruth at thehappysaver.com, and I'll put you in touch. And thanks, Jay, for offering that. As for resources that he would recommend, he watches a lot of YouTube channels, George Gammon was the one he recommended, Tea with Tony on YouTube, The Barefoot Investor book by Scott Pape, Mary Holmes' book, the old book Rich Dad Poor Dad which you will either love or hate and the writings of Max Rashbrook. Plus he likes reading interest.co.nz. JL Collins and The Simple Path to Wealth is a good book, plus he listens to a variety of talkback radio when he's out driving, which he feels keeps him in the loop of current opinion in Aotearoa. Honestly, we could have chatted even longer than the really, really long chat we did have. In my view, he is in the wrong career currently. He does have such a passion for this topic. He loves to share his strategy and his opinions, but he's also very receptive to hearing the thoughts of others, particularly this non-property podcaster. It would be cool to see him in a career that let him pursue these topics more. So before I wrap up, I have another quick message from today's sponsor. If you want to supercharge your finances with Pocketsmith, they've got a deal for you. Happy Saver listeners get a whopping 50% off your first two months of Pocketsmith's premium plan. To get your deal, go to pocketsmith.com forward slash the Happy Saver. That's pocketsmith.com forward slash the Happy Saver. Right, I am not going to lie to you. (laughs) Of all the podcasts I've created, I think that this one took the most work to bring together. Jay reached out to me with a story to share about him and his wife Shelley and their property investment journey and if you've read my blog at all you will have picked up the vibe that property investment really is not my thing. I've found other ways to grow my wealth without having to take part in an industry that I don't really like. I find the rental property business complex, convoluted, confusing and above all a really long-winded way to make money. And the debt burden, if I'm being completely honest, it makes me a bit nauseous. I knew as I set out to write this up that it was going to be a challenge because I know that my thoughts about housing as an industry are so different to his. So I want to say a sincere thanks to Jay for his patience with my many questions and for sharing his and Shelley's story. I hope I have represented your situation well, Jay. He is eloquent, he's bright and great with numbers and he has analysed the situation from every angle. And projected out into the years ahead, and it's hard to explain all of that in detail in a podcast. He and Shelley are a tight team these days, and they know that in regards to property, there are a few storm clouds brewing, so they need to work out how to navigate their multi-layered investment portfolio through this. It's because of his willingness to learn new information, and it's because of these changes that they have recently started to diversify into investments other than housing, because I think they are now seeing clearly that going too deep in one direction, it limits your opportunity in another and it restricts your ability to deal with change. And I think that's probably the thing that has me scratching my head when it comes to hardcore property investors. They often do it at the exclusion of all other types of perfectly satisfactory investments, making them more incensed when a government changes its rules. They take it more personally than they would if they were more diversified, in my view. To me, it still seems like an extraordinary amount of hard work to become a property investor. There are so many levers to pull to get it all working. I know many people who have got to this position and sold up everything, invested it in index funds and retired, but Jay doesn't see this as being as complex as I do. He's actually enjoying himself, I believe. He likes the complexity of it, feels like his work has its rewards, he has a set goal for them, and he said he is not running this race for himself. He's running it for the broader picture to help secure a future for his Fano, much like his own parents worked hard to hand the torch to him. Jay and Shelley remain in the same house they bought all those years ago when his own father said, you're about to become a dad, it's time to grow up a bit and settle down. His dad paced up and down outside the auction, too nervous to stay and watch, and he burst into tears when his son won it. And I can see how seeing your own whanau so happy and so proud for you can drive you to want to emulate their generosity and their success. He wanted to be clear and he said to me, this is important Ruth, what is the point of you having all of this wealth and taking it to the grave when you could have helped your kids get on the right track? Not to spoil them, but to help them. Why would you not want to do that? His dad and mum helped him into his first home and he has a duty of care to pass it on to his kids. So with that in mind, I'm really inspired to keep following along with his journey to hand the baton onto the next generation. So that's all from me this week. And if you want to get in touch, you can find me at thehappysaver.com. And I would love it if you could leave me a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And please do share it with your friends. It is the best way that people can learn about the podcast. And I would love it if you would talk more about money with your own friends and whānau and help me continue to help others be better with money. So until next time, happy saving.